In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, thank you for being the Lord that calls us to follow you on the road of suffering. Uh, knowing that we can be secure in all we have in you, would you this morning remind us of the indestructible hope that you've given us? Would you give us all the things we need by your Holy Spirit so that we might stand and suffer with you, our Savior? We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. I hope God uses me by means of first losing my personal freedom to tell those who have deprived me of my personal freedom that there is an authority higher than their authority and that there is a freedom that they cannot restrain, a freedom that fills the church of the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Uh, those words appeared on the internet back in December 2018 from a pastor called Wang Yi. Uh, he's a Chinese pastor who was very public in his denunciation of the Chinese government, and the stances they took demanding allegiance that Christians could not rightly give. Uh, Wang Yi knew that taking a stand for Christ would result in him being persecuted. Uh, he was sober-eyed about that uh, because, in fact, that statement I just read you came from a letter that he had prepared ahead of time, a letter that was to be released three days after he was incarcerated. The church members that were not taken into prison with he and the other 150 members of his church, they released that statement, and they showed that their pastor was ready to stand and suffer with the Savior. Now, I wonder, do you think that that sort of willingness to stand and suffer with Jesus is for some super class of Christians? 
Or are you ready to stand and suffer with your Savior as well? I hope by the end of this sermon, you'll be ready for that day. The Lord wills it when it comes, that your heart will have the resources it needs to stand and suffer with Christ. Uh, You're going to need four things for that to happen, though. Four things that Jesus reveals in Luke 12. The first of those things in verses 1 through 3 is that you need integrity of heart. You need integrity of heart. Uh, Jesus had been teaching. He had a very public run-in with the religious leaders of his day. Uh, But even that could not stop the popularity of teacher and miracle worker Jesus from rising. Uh, The scene starts in Luke 12 with Jesus and his disciples having crowds of such great numbers that it's like they're being crushed by the thousands that are thronging to him. But even in the cacophony of noise and popularity, uh, Jesus has first a concern for his disciples, which is why Luke tells us that he gathers his small band of disciples away from the crowds and he gives them a lesson. Tells them in verse 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Uh, Jesus knows that with popularity comes a particular ditch that the soul can very easily fall into. Uh, The ditch that we talked quite a bit about last week, of pretending to be one thing when in fact we are something else on the inside. Uh, Jesus uses a metaphor. He describes it as leaven. Uh, if you're a baker, you know what leaven is. It's, uh, it's yeast that you put into a dough to cause that dough to rise. Uh, the way it works is you just mix in a little bit, and over time, it will work its way through the whole lump of dough and cause it to puff up into that bready goodness that those of us who can indulge in gluten love so much. Uh, back in Jesus' day, it was a, a very common metaphor that was used to describe, for God's people, the way that sin can contaminate a person's soul. It only takes a little indulgence in sin. Pretty soon it works its way through your whole heart and compromises the totality of the person. Uh, Jesus particularly has in mind that sin that can puff up our hearts of hypocrisy, of pretending to be one thing on the outside when we are in fact something else on the inside. Uh, Jesus knows there's nothing that will more quickly deflate our ability to take a stand for him than that sin of hypocrisy. So he gives two reasons why you should cleanse out hypocrisy from your heart before it's too late. Two reasons that are both looking forward toward the final day of judgment. In verse 2, he says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Uh, Jesus' motivation for his disciples is essentially, hypocrisy is the shortest term thinking of all. Uh, For a time, you might be able to fool the people around you. Uh, You might be able to fool your boss or your coworkers. You might be able to fool a fellow church member. You might be able to fool even an accountability partner. Uh, But one day it'll be revealed that no one can fool God. 
Uh, There's a day coming that Jesus describes when the things that were done in the dark are brought out to the light. Things that people wanted kept in secret become public knowledge. He says another way, the things that were whispered in the inner rooms of the house, even thoughts in the inner person, even in the dark recesses of our hearts, those thoughts become proclaimed from the rooftops. Now, what is Jesus describing here? Uh, Well, certainly there are applications to this that happen here and now in this life when sins that have laid dormant and been hidden for a time are brought to light by God's providence. Uh, I heard the story uh, came out in Christianity Today back in 2011 of a woman named Judy Dabbler. Um, She was the head of a reconciliation ministry. Uh, You would hire her organization to come into your church if you had some accusation against a pastor or an elder or someone, uh, some official office. Uh, She and her organization would come in and do a full investigation and try to hold people accountable and ultimately with the goal of reconciling, bringing healing and wholeness and holiness to the body of Christ. Uh, But there's only one problem. Uh, It was revealed in this article in Christianity Today that that very ministry was rife with the very things it was tasked with rooting out. And the source of the problems was the head of that organization, Judy Dabbler herself. Now, when that news broke, that was, in a sense, something that was whispered in secret, now being proclaimed from the rooftops. There are times when that happens in this world, where Jesus rips the mask off and shows us what the person really is on the inside. That should bring a level of sobriety for all of us to consider. But as fearful as it is to be exposed in the here and now, there's something even more frightful that Jesus has in mind. That day of revealing that will happen on the final day. Uh, On that day, it'll be Jesus himself that exposes the secrets and the intentions in the hearts of men. Uh, On that day, Jesus, as judge, will show us what we really are on the inside, even revealing the things we've lied to ourselves about. Uh, Jesus says, cleanse out the sin from your heart. Do it now, before one day it's revealed for you. Cleanse out the leaven, so that you can have not hypocrisy of a puffed-up heart, but instead the the wonderful gift of simplicity and integrity. Uh, Not pretending you're something you're not. Not trying to give off appearances. Just being the same person in public that you are in private. Uh, Maybe you're here this morning and you have been living one of those sort of duplicitous lives that Christians sometimes fall into. Uh, Friend, Jesus is not surprised by that sin that you have not brought to light yet? Would you take his advice? Would you bring it to light before that day arrives? Uh, You don't need some priest to confess to. Uh, The Bible says we are to confess our sins to one another. That means if you have a trusted Christian friend that you think will handle that information well and give you good advice, that you should tell them about it and ask them to lead you in steps of repentance. Bring it to light before one day it's brought to light for you. Jesus says, first, you need integrity of heart. Second, he says, you need a healthy fear of God, verses four through seven. 
a healthy fear of God. There are many different versions of Jesus floating around. Uh, Many of them are far more sentimental than actually rooted in the scriptures themselves. Oftentimes, Jesus is portrayed as someone that would never say anything critical of us and would certainly never warn us with something as sobering as the reality of hell and judgment. And yet, if you go through your Bible, there's no one that talks about hell more often than Jesus. In this passage, he does so for a reason. Uh, Because he knows that we need a healthy fear of God if we are to stand and suffer with him. There are two components to the healthy fear of God. Uh, The first is a sort of reverence for the coming judgment of God. You see that in verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Uh, Jesus uses a very common way of thinking and reasoning for ancient Hebrews. He uses an argument from the lesser to the greater. It starts with something small, and once that's established, it says, surely there's something even greater than this that by implication must be even more true. In this case, the argument is there is a sort of fear that people have for what people can do to them physically. Uh, Yes, it's true, there are people in the world that can harm you. If you take a stand for Christ, it's quite possible that someone might do something to harm you physically or socially or relationally. That's true. Uh, But while that's, in one sense, something that you can fear, there's a fear that goes so much further than that. A fear of what someone can do to you eternally. While people might be able to hurt you for a time, when you die, their ability to harm you ceases. But we are eternal beings. And the God who will one day judge each of us, he has the ability to punish us. In some sense, harm us. Not just for a short time, but according to Jesus, forever. Uh, He used a well-known image in his day, the Valley of Gehenna. It was a place outside the city, kind of like the city trash heap. They would throw their trash, they'd be filled with corpses of dead animals and all sorts of filth. And there would be fires burning in it day and night. It never went out. Uh, That's the image Jesus uses to explain with sobriety what we should fear in the coming wrath of God. Uh, According to Jesus, there will be something far worse than being rejected by your friends or thrown into prison or even burned at the stake. It would be to experience the unending wrath of a holy God against your sins forever. The Bible clearly teaches that God is a just God. He is holy, and he holds all of his creatures to account for everything they do, every word they say, every action they take. A sin against an infinite holy God deserves an unending punishment because God is without end. Uh, Why does Jesus tell us this? 
Well, in one sense, it is so that we would fear God. It is true that fear of God can protect you from some sins. The the reality of fearing what God might do to you if you do not repent, it might keep you from doing something that you otherwise would. I uh, went to a ministry in the inner city of Chicago uh, with at-risk children that um, the people there tried to love on them and teach them about Jesus and, and convince them to stop living the gangbanger lifestyle that was so prevalent in that neighborhood. And they had something that was written on the wall. It said, virtue can keep you out of prison, but only Jesus can keep you out of hell. Now what they were trying to instill in those boys was a a sort of godly sobriety and fear of the holy God that will one day judge each of us. Now if you're here this morning and Maybe you don't know where you stand with God. Maybe you don't like the idea of thinking of the wrath of God or even a place like hell. Now realize Jesus is not saying this just to terrify you. He's warning you out of love so that while there's still an opportunity, you might avoid going to this place. Uh, Friend, the, the Bible teaches two things, both that we are far worse off than we ever imagined because we have sinned against God and deserve unending punishment. And that God is far more loving and merciful than we ever had a reason to hope or imagine. Uh, Both those things are shown clearly in the person of Jesus. Uh, Jesus experienced the wrath of God when he allowed himself to be killed on the cross, showing that God's holiness demands justice. Jesus absorbed the penalty that sinners deserved in himself. He did that also, not just out of justice, but out of love. So that anyone who repents of their sins and turns to him by faith would never find hell to be there a place of living forever, but instead have a home with the God who made them. Uh, A friend, if you're here this morning and you've not yet put your trust in Jesus, he wants to shock your soul a bit so that you might run to God through him and find shelter from the coming judgment of God. If all we had was that first image, I will admit, that would give us reason to be terrified. But thankfully, there is a second portion to how Jesus teaches us to fear God, which balances out that fear. Uh, Not just is it a sober fear, it's also a secure fear that knows that God loves us as our heavenly father. That's what he tells in in verse six. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. Uh, That same God who one day will punish all sinners is a God who pays attention even to the most minute details of our lives and has an inexhaustible store of love for each and every one of us and each and every circumstance that we live in. It uses the example of the, the cheapest the dime, uh, uh, dime for a dozen sort of birds that you'd find in the market, sparrows. Uh, 
Uh, sparrows were so cheap, you could buy a five-pack of them for two pennies. Uh, they were so numerous that no one thought much of them. No one would, went around and cataloged them or named them or kept track of which sparrow was thriving or which sparrow was diving. They just were. But according to Jesus, each and every sparrow is accounted for by our Heavenly Father. Uh, he keeps track of their pecking and their nesting and their swooping. Now ask yourself, are you worth more than a sparrow? Of course you are. Uh, you're made in the image of God. And if he cares for those tiny, insignificant sparrows, and even has meticulous detail of every part of their lives, surely he cares for you and has the love of an attentive father. Uh, the second example comes not from birds of the air, but the hairs on our head. Um, at last I checked, scientists think, estimate that the average person has about 100,000 hairs on your head. Um, some of us have a few less than that. I'll let you figure out who the, that might be. No one has the time to sit there and count each and every hair follicle. There's too much detail, even for the tax accountants among us. But our Heavenly Father... He keeps track of each and every detail of your life down to the lowest decimal point. Each and every hair on your head, lovingly put there. He has an intention for every one of them. And if he cares for even the small detail of the hair on your head, surely he will care for the bigger details. Surely he loves you, knows everything about you. It will provide everything that you need, even if you must suffer. You see, brothers and sisters, we are not to be in terror of the God of heaven. We are to have a healthy fear of him, to soberly consider his reverence, but to be secure in his fatherly love for us, knowing that nothing will happen to us that's outside of his notice or even his good intention for us. Would you trust him? Would you care more about what he thinks than what anyone else thinks of you? Uh, when that coworker offers an opportunity for you to join in and with some crass joking that you know you shouldn't do, would you reverently and securely care more about what God in heaven thinks than whether you're on the inside of that social circle? Uh, when someone puts peer pressure on you to do something that you know is outright wrong, maybe even evil, would you soberly and securely remember your heavenly Father is watching every single moment of your life? Would you live for his approval, not the approval of men? Uh, we live at a time where it's very easy to make yourself a, a public spectacle in not a good way. Uh, maybe you're afraid of letting it be known to the world that you take a stand with Christ on what the Bible says about morality and sexuality. Uh, maybe you're afraid of what will happen if people know that you stand for the rights of the unborn. Would you care more about your heavenly Father's approval than even the approval of the whole community around you if that's what it takes? Jesus says you need a healthy fear of God. Don't fear men. There's a third thing you'll need in verses 8 through 10. 
You need the conviction to confess. The conviction to confess. Uh, Jesus explains there's going to be a sort of reciprocity on the final day of judgment. Uh, those who have confessed his name will find that Jesus will be ready to confess their name. He says, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Uh, Jesus makes clear that it is not an option whether we are to confess Christ. In this context, clearly that is before men. That is a public declaration that we stand with Jesus with the expectation that that might result in a great cost that is paid. Uh, Jesus says if you do that, if you willingly accept the suffering and the scorn as you stand up for Christ, that one day Christ himself will stand up for you. Uh, before the watching audience of the very angels of heaven, he will declare, this is one of my servants. This is one who I have loved. This is one who has conquered. And you'll enter into your master's rest. On the other hand, he has a warning uh, for those who shrink back and who don't confess his name. Uh, they should have no expectation that on the final day, that Christ will confess their name. Now, Jesus said this knowing that the disciples he was speaking to, uh, the vast majority of them would end up having violent ends to their life for doing this very thing, confessing Christ. Eleven of the twelve disciples, as best we can tell, ended up killed for their confession of Jesus Christ. And indeed, down through the ages, this has been the normal experience of Christians, uh, we have had a history in the place and time where we've lived where there has been remarkably little persecution of Christians, uh, particularly the generations that have immediately preceded us. Historically, that is odd. If you go through the way that Christianity spread, uh, you'll see that from the very earliest days, Christians had to pay a high price for confessing Christ. Uh, early in the Roman Empire, uh, the emperor came up with a way to sort out who were the serious Christians and who weren't. See, he realized that all the other religions were happy to just add another allegiance to another god on top of their existing ones. Uh, they were, so he required that everyone would come and offer incense and declare Caesar is Lord. If you were any other religion, that was no problem. You would do it. But the Christians could not because they knew that Christ was Lord. So offering a pinch of incense and declaring Caesar is Lord became the decision point of whether you would stand and suffer with Christ or whether you would shrink back. Now many, many people did not live up to that test and they, they failed in the moment. Their courage did not allow them to stand for Christ much to their shame, uh, which is why the early church had to deal with this question over and over again. What happens when someone doesn't stand for Christ? Does that mean that they're eternally lost? Well, Jesus actually addresses the question in the next verse. He says, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, 
but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, undoubtedly, this is one of the harder verses in the entire Bible, and I could spend an entire sermon trying to explain to you just what the blasphemy of the Spirit is and all the inventive interpretations that have come out down through the ages. I don't think it is right to understand it as simply really spectacular sins like adultery or murder. The Bible's filled with examples of murderers and adulterers who are forgiven and find grace in Jesus. So what is the blasphemy of the Spirit? And what does it mean that you can be forgiven for speaking against Christ after what he just said the verse before? Uh, the best way of understanding it um, uh, came from Daryl Bach in my study this week. He, he drew an analogy of the difference between Peter and Judas. Now think of Peter. Uh, Peter, at one point in his life, very boldly confessed Christ. And yet there came a moment when it was about to cost him something, to stand up with Jesus. And in that moment, his heart failed. Uh, Peter denied Jesus three times to his shame. And yet ultimately, Peter repented. And he came back, and by the grace of Jesus, he was restored. And best we can tell, the end of his life, yes, he suffered for standing with Jesus in his death. Now, Peter would be the example of someone who speaks a word against the Son. That is, for a moment, uh, they, they lose the courage they should have, and they don't stand up for Christ, and yet, afterward, the grace of Jesus still reaches them, and ultimately, they do confess his name. That would be Peter. Now, Judas, on the other example, is a different matter altogether. Uh, Judas, at a particular moment, had an appeal to God through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. And yet Judas fully and finally rejected the witness of the Spirit. He refused to accept Christ's appeal. And at that moment, his rejection was final. Satan entered him and he went out into the darkness of his own soul and in the night. And all that was left for him was the wrath of God. I think Judas gives us the category to understand the blasphemy of the Spirit. It's not something you can see on the outside of a person. Uh, it is the inward rejection of the only way anyone believes in Jesus, of the Holy Spirit himself. Now, for every person that ends up in hell, there was a last time. Uh, there was a last pang of the conscience a last prayer that someone appealed to them through, a, a last opportunity to hear and receive and repent through the gospel being preached. With all the different circumstances people have, each and every one of them are not without a witness. And for each of them, there was a final appeal of the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't know when that comes. I can't tell whether someone's rejection of me and the gospel I preach is the final rejection, or is just one of those intermediate ones, and one day they might repent. Now, once again, this brings us to think of eternal things. Are we responding to Jesus while there is a chance? It's also calling us as Christians to have a bit of a backbone and to be ready to stand up for Jesus no matter what it costs us. 
Do you realize that you are called to stand for Christ, even if it means you must suffer? Uh, none of us are going to do that perfectly. Some of us will fail spectacularly at it. Um, Thomas Cramner was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England. Uh, basically, he was the top of the religious order of the, uh, in the UK, back in, the, in England back then. Uh, most of the language, the traditional language you hear at a funeral or at a wedding, it was written by Thomas Cramner. Huge impact on how even our church operates, whether you realize it or not. Uh, for as great a giant of the faith as Thomas Cramner was, uh, there was a moment where his courage failed him. Uh, Mary took the throne. The Protestants called her Bloody Mary because she had hundreds of them killed. The way she loved to do it was by burning them at the stake. Uh, Cramner saw his friends burned in front of his eyes. Mary made sure of that. And he knew because of his elevated position, unless he recanted, that that would be his fate as well. And in the days he had to think about it, Tamner, Cramner lost his nerve. Uh, he wrote out a series of confessions recounting what, uh, recanting what he formerly believed and professing allegiance to the Pope and to the Catholic Church. Now, despite that, Mary, living up to her bloody moniker, decided he was going to be killed anyway. And thankfully, at the end of his life, right before he was to be killed, Cramner repented. He, he walked up to his final opportunity to speak publicly. And he had given a speech to his jailers uh, that was in line with what they had seen of him before, that he was uh, continuing to bow the knee to the, the Pope in Rome. But when he actually got up to speak, he did the exact opposite. He recanted on his recantation. Uh, de he declared he stood with Christ. And he even said, the first part of me that's going to burn is going to be the hand I use to write those blasphemous things. And then he made good on his word and put his hand in the fire before the rest of him was consumed. Uh, friends, we need to be ready to confess Christ, no matter the cost. If we fear God, not men, if we are, our hearts are filled with integrity, that is not an impossible task. Now, I doubt many of us will be burned at the stake. I pray it's not the case. My guess is very few of us will even be thrown in prison for standing for Christ. And yet there are real costs to be paid for having that courage to confess that you stand with Jesus. I was so touched a few months back. One of you came to me. Uh, you had, uh, there was a, a friend that was on his deathbed that, that this person knew needed Christ so badly. Only he knew that that person didn't want to hear about Jesus anymore. He made an attempt and went to his friend, tried to share the gospel, and what he received was rejection. That friend said, if you want to be my friend, you won't ever talk with me about him again. Now, I thank God for the courage of that dear brother and the way he cared for the approval of man even more than the approval of his friend so that he could gladly bear that scorn to do the best thing he could out of love and share Jesus with him before it was too late. I don't know who the Lord will have in front of you this week, but I do know this, 
that you need to be ready to stand with your Savior, even if it means that you would suffer. And the good news is that Jesus doesn't ask you to do this on your own, because fourth and finally, what your heart needs most of all is you need help from the Holy Spirit. That's in verses 11 through 12. Now, Jesus doesn't ask you to do something that you're incapable of doing because he has given you a helper to make it happen, the Holy Spirit. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how, uh, how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Uh, the first disciples found Jesus' promise here to be something they could bank their lives on. Uh, they were dragged before the religious authorities and in front of the Roman officials and in front of princes and kings. They were threatened and asked to give an account for their unwavering faith in Christ. And in those moments when they had no opportunity to prepare, the Holy Spirit gave them words to say to confess their allegiance to Christ and to stand with them even when it meant they would suffer. Now friends, they found that promise to be true and that promise still stands good to us 2,000 years later. Uh, maybe you're the sort of person that doesn't think that you speak all that well extemporaneously. Maybe you get tongue-tied or you just seem to make every conversation awkward. And so maybe you're hesitant to talk to someone about Jesus because you just don't think it's going to come out right. But do you hear Jesus' promise here? Uh, that the Holy Spirit that lives inside you will provide you words, even words better than you could have dreamed up if you sat down in front of a word processor and had all day to think about it. Uh, would you trust him enough to allow him to provide in a risky situation, knowing that he delights to help us when we're desperate. Um, I find myself seeing this verse lived out again and again the longer I've pastored. Sometimes it happens to me. I had one particular week, um, I was in my office in the middle of writing something or the other. No opportunity to prepare whatsoever what was coming. Someone walked into my office bringing someone who had just walked into the church, wanted to talk to a pastor. Uh, that person walked in, and as soon as I laid eyes on them, I had the inward sense that the Lord had arranged this meeting. Uh, so I actually felt the freedom to tell them, I'm so glad you're here. I've been waiting for you. It really freaked them out. <laughs> but that whole conversation, I had this sense that God was giving me words to say. I didn't know that person. I didn't have time to consider what Bible passages to use or how to present myself or the gospel. And yet the Holy Spirit was with me. And so I could have confidence that I could stand with the Savior, not be worried about the results. Uh, friends, I don't know who you'll be talking to this week. It may be someone that God has been working on for months and years and who will respond positively and with joy and receive the good news of the gospel through your witness. It may be someone who has little by little been hardening themselves against God, who might throw more than a little bit of scorn your way, or even do something to try to wound you emotionally when you speak up about Christ. But I do know this, you're called to stand with the Savior even when you suffer. 
And he's given you everything you need so that you can do it. It's not being a superstar in Christianity. It's just following Jesus. Pastor Wang Yi understood that, which is why he was ready for the day when the officials came and rounded him and members of his church up and threw them in prison. He's been there for four and a half years now. If they're to be taken at their word, that's not even quite halfway through his sentence. Uh, it was so instructive by the, the fact that he was not even af not afraid of that moment, even prepared for it. And even in that uh, letter that he wrote, that he explained his heart behind it. Listen to his words. The cross means being willing to suffer when one does not have to suffer. For Christ had limitless, limitless ability to fight back, yet he endured all of the humility and hurt. The way that Christ resisted the world that resisted him was by extending an olive branch of peace on the cross to the world that crucified him. Brothers and sisters, if you are following Jesus, that means you need to be ready to stand with your Savior, even if it means you'll suffer. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you help us not to live for the empty praise of man or for the seeming security of this world? Uh, would you remind us that there is one God over us all, one Lord, one Spirit, and only one hope that we might live forever and be saved from your wrath? Uh, Jesus, would you give our hearts the courage they need so that we could be able to stand for you? Would you cleanse us from sin from the inside out? Would you give us a healthy reverence and security in your love? And most of all, would you, by your Holy Spirit, remind us that you will give us the words to speak? Oh, Jesus, make us into a people that are not ashamed of the name of Christ. We pray that you would do this. We pray in your name. Amen.